Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Welcome to another edition of Relaxation of the Gardener. Uh, now, uh, we are continuing our series of Exploding Garden Myths. Uh, and this week we, we were due to talk about how it's a complete fallacy that wisteria thrives on neglect. Uh, we've all heard this, uh, but Leo uh, doesn't want to tackle that one this week. He might well talk about why it's it's not a good idea to plant potatoes on Good Friday, yeah. like everyone tells you. Leo, why would you rather talk about potatoes okay. than wisteria? I have to say, objectively, it's not as fascinating. <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, now, before we tackle that, Justin, I, I hear you're going to be quite busy coming up. No, I've got I've got to go and do some uh, clips and weeding somewhere, but I'm not sure what time I'm setting off. No, 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 no. This isn't right at all. Uh, Leo, would you mind coming over here for a moment? Sure. I'm trying to use a dimensional oscillator to listen to our podcast and other planes of reality. Uh, but at the moment, all I seem to be getting is this version of reality where we're doing a gardening podcast. Well, there is, there is, uh, there are alternatives, of course. Of course. Other alternate realities are simply just the frequency modulator, and let's see what we hear. Uh, welcome to the uh, Reawakening of Mankind's Super Consciousness podcast, episode 2840B slash Apple. Uh, I am, of course, joined as always by the Ura High Priest of the Quantum Perspective, Leo. You came before, and then you came after. And his brain symbiont, Sue. Alan. Today we are also glad to be joined by the sentient thought cloud, Justin. I might extend my welcome if that's okay. This week's topic is going to be about how mankind has improved, both mentally and spiritually, since the aliens came through the Stargate and gave us greater intellectual enlightening. Oh, no, 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 that's far too high a plane of existence. Uh, All right, then. See you soon. Bye-bye. Where are you going? I'm looking forward to having a bit of a, a rest as well. We're going hunting. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Now, let's see if I can find another dimension. Aha! This one seems to be a bit more gothic and emo. Just the sort of place we'll find what we're looking for. Hello and welcome to Revenant of the 80s Kids. It has been a year since we were killed and have since been resurrected by a flock of telepathic black carrion aliens. And now we seek only justice, but we're also obsessed with death. Uh, 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 Justin, what did you make of the whole process of dying? There's a kind of a sadness to it. And uh, Leo returning to life? Yeah, 
it's a, it's going to be a, it's a fascinating journey. Yes, so I suppose we just need to know how we're going to entertain ourselves here in our resurrected life. We just need to know what we're doing, that's all. Well, indeed, I think our first order of business would be to avenge your murder by killing Michael Bay. That's fine, that's cool. Excellent. No, that's really... No, that's um, the wrong sort of undead. Uh, one more try. Nothing. Silence. It's almost as if whoever's making this podcast cannot be heard or seen by any medium that is artificial. Only human eyes or ears can perceive them. My God. Leo, I believe we have what we're looking for. Uh, Justin, come over here and grab the dimensional fluctuation machine. We're going on a journey. <laughs> okay. Let's enter the coordinates and off we go. Everyone keep your cool. No, these leeches can jump out of nowhere. Stay on guard. Oh, my God. I drink your blood. Shoot it with the wooden bullets. Shoot it, shoot it now. Shoot it, shoot it. <laughs> Code 5 neutralized. Yay. Justin, gather up its coffee granule-like remains and prepare them for cold ultraviolet storage. Excellent, I shall. I shall sort that out soon. And while you're doing that, I'll quickly set the coordinates so we can return back to our own dimension. A very successful hunting trip, gentlemen. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay, everyone, grab hold. Here we go. Gentlemen, we have a problem. Uh, duplicates of ourselves from a parallel dimension have suddenly materialised in our studio, uh, thus disrupting our recording of our latest podcast, which this week is all about 90s television. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, other me, uh, what's with all this then? Uh, 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 terribly sorry, my mistake, totally my mistake. I, uh, huh. I, I wanted to return to my home dimension of Alpha Pi Psi. Huh. Huh? I accidentally typed in Alpha Pi Sigma, yeah. which is your reality. Uh, very close to our own. I, I wonder what the differences are. I'm going to put it into Google now. Yeah, let me see. Oh, this is bizarre. Hmm. According to this, that really rubbish vampire movie from the 90s got turned into a TV series that became one of the most influential dramas ever to happen, not only through genre entertainment, but television in general. My God, you do live in bizarro land. Well, we've got to be off. We'll leave you to your freakazoid dimension. Bye-bye. Um, gentlemen, what the f***? just happened it can't um, be that question <laughs> you know it's really weird but we seem to live in the dimension where things like that you know incredibly important uh, missions carried out by interdimensional warrior versions of us to kill vampires and other dimensions curiously reference lots of popular media so obviously that's what we've got to talk about because in this universe that's what's the most important thing apparently. Um, so that's good. Welcome to Revenge of the 80s Kids. And uh, 
I think it's Revenge of the 80s Kids anyway. I'm just checking, am I still me? Who's eating this chicken leg anyway? Joining me, of course, is Ian, uh, who you've already heard, and uh, who you've already sort of heard, Justin. Indeed. This time, though, I'm speaking my own words with intent and not stolen from me and used used in weird contexts, but, you know. Although it does occur to me that there is a game uh, that you can play where you pretend that you're being... You're, everything you say has to sound like it's a snippet of conversation. You, you have to say it a slightly different tone and, and, you know, as if it's recorded on different occasions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a spatula! <laughs> I'm just going to move the handbag. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, um, getting straight over that. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, is interesting about that is that, as well as an opening skit, because we, we uh, generally hear these things just before we record, and indeed this is the case right now, is that it, it embodies, in a way, some of the stuff that happened to television in the late 90s, or particularly US television, in that it had a kind of through line, it had an arc, it, and, you, it, and, and it became intriguing and fascinating. Um, I mean, I think intriguing... In the early 90s, uh, and I'm looking at you, Twin Peaks, and I'm looking at you, American Gothic, to a lesser extent. But essentially, intriguing was fine in a, a television series. Oh, The X-Files, certainly. But it was kind of like yet another gimmick. Like, our gimmick is that we are intriguing. And and that's that meant that it was kind of like... I wouldn't want to say fake intrigue. I'm sure that somebody somewhere intended Twin Peaks to go somewhere. And I'm sure Chris Carter wanted The X-Files to wrap up sensibly but oh, well, yeah, just, yeah, you know plenty of time to do that no one going to kiss oh, the well, big yeah there. but you know uh, uh, well it's it's just in the environment of television i think that people who work there may take this attitude of like well you know in between the, the massive sort of roiling forces of the writing team and and the actors wanting being paid and people walking out their contracts or female actresses getting pregnant and then the studio and then the advertisers and all these different things. How can you put together something that, that sort of coherently fits together as a, as a thing? And, and, and that's, I think they take it sort of with that picture and particularly, you know, throughout the eighties and, and, and in the early nineties, uh, ironically, I mean, I think I said it last time, we were living with the legacy of Gene Rodenbury's directive on Star Trek that people should never need to watch what comes before and shouldn't be feel compelled to watch what comes after that, you know, every, every episode should be its own shining jewel that could be taken in isolation. And, and that kind of was something that people seemed to think was a sort of an accepted wisdom because that's the way that sort of they believe television works. Which well, that's the, that's the way that's the way serials work, but it's not how soap operas operate, is it? Yeah, but I think that well, ah, now here's the thing though. I mean, I think when a soap opera begins, you've got a point. But most people who come to watch it, like most of the people who probably watch EastEnders, for example, today were not even alive when EastEnders began. And certainly this is true of Coronation Street uh, in the UK. These are UK soap operas, uh, uh, US listeners. And therefore, although, yes, technically they appear to have... I mean, this is the point. That kind of soap opera, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, but we don't get US soap operas. But I think all soap operas 
have to give the illusion of motion, whereas actually nothing is happening. And therefore, somebody could watch a bit of it. And as long as they find a sliver of it interesting enough to keep watching, they will. Uh, but then one day you kind of... And, and I know that we had this with Australian soaps in the 80s and early 90s, uh, although they still broadcast them here, the chief offenders being neighbours and home and away. You kind of... I think there was a time when, you know, when you were a kid, you got home, you watched your children's television, then Neighbours was on for half an hour, and many people watched Neighbours. Nobody knows why, not even the people who make Neighbours. It was it just became this, like, show that was really big with kids in the UK during the late 80s. You know, and then there was a point where you were trying to catch them both, every, all the kids watched Home and Away and Neighbours. And then there was a point where everyone went, uh, wait a second, what are we doing? And they all walked away. But then occasionally you catch a little bit of it on television and you're remarkable. You find it remarkable how exactly the same that you could just sit down and within a couple of episodes you'd pick back, you'd be right back up to speed. And what does that tell you about soap operas? It tells you that nothing happens in a soap opera. Nothing at all. It's like a comfortable pair of shoes. Yeah, but my friend refers to it as kind of wallpaper for the eyes. It's just there. <laughs> You know, it's just doing its thing and just people sit down and watch it and that they don't really gain anything <laughs> significant out of it, really, particularly in terms of, <laughs> of anything, really. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I mean, if you think about the fact that a, a soap opera's timeline can be marked by those events that happen and the events that actually happen, the events that people remember from soap operas uh, are things that happen about as frequently as things in real life. You know, like Dirty Den being shot by a pop gun by a canal, that kind of thing. People remember it because actually it's one of the very few things that has ever happened in the soap opera. Although it seems like a lot is happening, it's all an illusion. Which weirdly, uh, in case anyone's wondering if we're going to go into this big thing about, uh, you know, quasi-hyper-realistic British kitchen sink drama, uh, is something that Stan Lee strove for uh, in Spider-Man. He actually issued a directive to say that Spider-Man's arcs should appear to contain, in fact, Marvel comics as a whole, should appear to contain much toing and froing and emotional this and that and stuff. But actually, it's an illusion of growth and change and thing because you're really going around in a circle. And so, I mean, you know, soap operas and Marvel comics. Who knew they had so much in common? Indeed. <laughs> so there um, we go. So that, I mean, we've, we've kind of adequately covered there, or I've sort of summarised how it was coming into the late 90s. And I suppose we better sort of deal, really, with the elephant uh, that sits so comfortably in this room, because it'll be the, the, the tree from which the rest of the fruit grows. And that is, of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, this was the first series that, um, cause I didn't see it was, well, it was, it was on, it was on television. I think it may have got sucked up by Sky Television. So I think BBC were getting it late. But it was the first series I ever watched box set style. Because they, the, the Buffy box sets came in box sets. The tradition with videos was to release one or two episodes at a time on a video. And this was the first one to kind of go, here's a box a, with all your videos in it. Well, it was, it was two boxes per season. That's a very significant thing, though, isn't it? I yes. mean, I just think, you know, this is why, I mean, I know, uh, I know the success of Babylon 5 kind of broke the mold, but it didn't really come in that breaking of the episodic thing until really the abundance of box sets, because now people are watching stuff in gluts 
rather than every week. So actually you can have a story that entwines and evolves and changes. Characters can go through arcs because people are changing how they watch things. It's more like watching a long film or, you know, reading a book uh, than a series of little morsels that don't change the status quo as is traditional TV. It, it just goes to show there's a thing with Buffy, uh, not so much with Buffy, and if I think back on it, but certainly with the offshoot, Angel. I remember watching Angel Series 4, which everyone hates, but I really enjoyed. And I don't know why I think it's Angel fans that hate Angel Season 4. I, I really liked Season 4 of Angel because it is completely insane. And there was a point where I was watching an episode and I was like, Wow. If you were just, when this was first aired, if you happened to be someone who'd never watched it before, maybe you, you know, you had some kind of tennis lesson or something on that night, and you were like, oh, it's been called off because the tennis instructor has flu or something, and you switched on to, let's see what's on television, and you happened to land on this episode of Angel, you'd be completely be like, what the hell is this about? What the hell is going on? Who are all these people? What are they talking about? Like, not, like you were when you watched Twin Peaks, because that certainly happened with Twin Peaks, but bearing in mind the fact that that would happen with Twin, Twin Peaks from the episode after the pilot. Like, if you missed the pilot, you'd think you'd missed a lot of stuff, but actually, the more Twin Peaks you watched, the more you'd realise, no, they just talk like that. You know, there isn't anything to understand. But in Angel, seriously, if you hadn't watched up to that point in the series, which is about halfway through, you had no chance. You wouldn't know why anyone was doing anything or what the hell was going on. And that was not the way that television had ever worked before. Which is unusual that fans dislike it, because they normally like it when the TV programmes go thoroughly down the rabbit hole. Uh, I believe from internet chatter that the uh, key dissatisfaction with Angel Season 4 was Angel's son. Oh, Econa. Yes. Yes. Uh, Well, they don't don't like it when the kid turns up, do they? Regardless of what show it is. I thought, well, also they wrote him out. I thought it was reasonably self-contained. It's not, it's not like a, a dawn situation where it changes the dynamic forever. No. So there we go. The first of the box set uh, series. Uh, now, uh, growing off from Buffy, uh, we, we should possibly uh, take time to consider Buffy for a moment. Why not? Um, yeah. Weird idea or weird thing to have, as you noted in your excellent uh, opening uh, skit. Uh, the idea, if you were from an alternative universe and you came here and you discovered that the, the wacky uh, comedy film from the mid-90s had been turned into a sort of television series and then that television series was a pretty big deal, you would think it was bizarre. It's a bizarre thing. I remember the first episode I ever watched when it was on Sky and I happened to be visiting my dad and he said, oh, you should watch this. It's pretty good. My dad said that. Yeah, um, It's fun. And I watched it and it was fun. And I was like... Hmm. Even I was like, that's a bit odd. Why is this fun? The first episode of Buffy I ever watched, incidentally, uh, was the one where the hyena spirits took over the students at the zoo trip. (laughs) Not one of the best episodes that was ever there, but it was in the first season, so it's forgivable that it was a bit rubbish. But in retrospect, but at the time, you know, it seemed fresh and wonderful, you know. I mean, that's the thing, you know, this... Principal Flutie got killed, and that was like he's he was he was an ongoing character until that point. Yes, it was, and that was like episode seven or something. So it was about halfway through the series. So Principal Flutie had been there, and and, and then yes, he got replaced by uh, someone who 
who didn't, uh, who made it more or less all the way, didn't he? Major graduation. End of the yeah. series. Yeah. At which point we don't have high school, so who cares? I mean, for me, I think the magic of a series, especially like Buffy, is to basically have an environment that you want to be part of. And you you, you really did feel like one of the gang with Buffy, yeah. didn't you? It, it so sucked you in. And I think the golden period of Buffy is when she was in high school. Because it just seemed to fit my imagination when I was stuck in school being bored. And, like, wouldn't it be wonderful if I was off fighting giant robots in between classes or something? I think Buffy did a very good job of balancing not letting the school stuff swamp well, the interesting things of going off and fighting vampires or villain of the week or whatever. For me, it, for me, it kind of feel that kind of Doctor Who vibe where, you know, you're having every just the abundance of types of creatures you could face, you know, every week. It would change sometimes it's magic, sometimes it's vampires, sometimes it's weird creatures. It it changed all the time. And I kind of really liked that. I was kind of missing that. And, you know, the dialogue was very good. It was very kind of funny at times. It was just a kind of nice thing that I just kind of used to enjoy and see how it evolved, really. Um, I think there wasn't really anything that was getting, I, I was getting from TV at the time that kind of quite tapped into that and developed my kind of love of kind of urban fantasy. It, it, the problem that I'm finding in trying to discuss, pick things out of Buffy to be, you know, explored is that it kind of pointed things out. I mean, this is the thing. When you find someone who, who's vehemently anti-Weedon, which is, you know, and, and generally they always say, I actually don't have that much of a problem with Joss Whedon. It's his fans. <laughs> no, well, when, people, when I've heard someone complain about Joss Whedon, it's normally because they say all his characters sound the same. They're the same sassy, uh, self-deprecating uh, wit character every time. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, there, there is definitely that. There, you know, you can tell when Joss Whedon has written something. That is definitely. I don't know if that's that, that's a criticism per se, but yes, no. I've heard lots of uh, stuff. Um, you know, I've heard the words hack, unoriginal. I think because his fans, a lot of his uh, closest fans, or uh, closest is that the word? Uh, most zealous fans. That's definitely the word. The most zealous fans regard him as kind of a guru. I don't think uh, that any writer, particularly not one uh, like Joss Whedon, who works all the time. I mean, I think he regards himself as busy. I don't think he regards himself as wise or enlightened or he's just trying to get the thing done. And because he is, you know, it's a literal thing. He is busy. He doesn't really notice that there are these. He can't really spend much time thinking about people who you know, we'll get onto the internet and argue that, you know, he's he's like Buddha or something, a great spiritual leader. You, know, you can't allow that to impinge on making the next Avengers movie. You have to make the next Avengers movie. That's how it works. And I think that many people who don't like Joss Whedon think that he's, you know, untalented, unoriginal, a hack, all of these things, are actually reacting to this idea that people are putting thoughts into Whedon's head that aren't there. The Whedon knows, you know, I'm just doing this my way. That's what he would consider me. I'm doing this in the Joss Whedon style, as indeed I must, for I am Joss Whedon. Yeah? But what I'm trying to get at is Buffy isn't 
as original as it seems or wasn't even at the time. It evolved, it grew, it was organic. Many of the episodes in the first season were pretty standalone. It just so happened that they had three or four episodes that that made a sort of a, a through arc. And they kept cutting back to the, the, the series Big Bad and they thought that was an acceptable compromise between arc and episode was to have some kind of overarching villain who was in the background throughout the whole thing. But, but you know, this sort of idea, and you see, Whedon even, the Whedonites, or Whedon himself, someone, somewhere, coined this term, the big bad, which infected all of the other television afterwards. You know, who's the series villain? So, yes, ideas that were there before have become things that are now common currency. I haven't actually watched Buffy season one again any time recently, but I imagine if I did, I'd be a bit like, wow, this seems old. Yes. Well, I mean, my, my abiding memory of the time is just, just tremendous fun I had watching Buffy. I think he had tremendous fun making Buffy. And uh, much has been made of, oh, we have a female lead character. How unusual. We're only rapidly approaching the millennium. Did you think it was innovative, as, as people say, and a more derivative, you reckon? No, I'm just trying to say that uh, an incredibly uh, zealous Whedon fan would tell you it was the most original thing that happened on television. And to a certain extent, from a certain point of view, I think they would be right. Well, you, you also, However, God bear in mind, it's also the dawning of the internet as, as a fully yes. popular medium. So it's the, this is probably one of the first times a TV show has brought people together in intense love. Uh, and that just you know it reflects back yeah. your own obsession and passion. So that's an intensifier as well. What I was going to say is, you know, the things that were done which were new, e.g. the introduction of the big bad, and that's about it, really. That was it, that idea of being able to have an arc without it being too intrusive. That's the innovation. But then all the other things that came together to make it what it was, uh, you know, having a gang of people who were your regular cast regulars, setting it in high school, uh, mixing up emotional troubles with heroic exploits, uh, <coughs> Spider-Man... Uh, you know, all of these things, they're not original. They were just, it's just a recipe. And, and the only reason the big bad was a sort of an innovation in television was because television was digging its heels in and trying not to ever have, you know, they would have maybe recurring villains, but they wouldn't have this idea of committing to, and this is the series in which we defeat the master, and this is the series in which we defeat uh, Spike and, and Drusilla, and this is the They wouldn't commit to that, and then now they would. And that's, that's, so the innovation comes out of the fact that it, it, television was commitment phobic. Uh, so, um, so, uh, what you're saying is his, his great innovation is the end of series finale. I mean, previously, uh, end of series finales could be big because a major actor's contract could be up and they're off. So this could be a big episode by happenstance. Uh, but this is, these are like end of series, it, building towards crescendo or climax in which threads are drawn together, which have been laced throughout the series. You're saying that, that is the principal Buffy, uh, uh, innovation. Yeah, which obviously had been done prior in Babylon 5. Uh, yeah, well, in because, a way. In a way, because I, don't, I wouldn't say Babylon 5 series is often ended on a crescendo. They kind of ended with a kind of, well, things are going to be even more screwed up next year, aren't they? I see. So there we go. <laughs> um, if you contrast it to uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and when it ended with the, the Borg and, you know, 
I'm Locutus of Borg and all that. That was all about, on the one hand, leading people off, like going, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next series, in which they're going to solve everything in the first episode. And also, it meant that the uh, first half of the two-parter uh, sat in one box, like that you video box that you got, and then you'd have to buy another one to get the other half. That often annoyed my uncle. It also, with, with Star Trek, they had an annoying habit of writing the first part without any idea how they're going to resolve it in the second half. Which usually meant you had a quite a good first part which built up a lot of things, and it just seemed to go off the boil in the, in, in the second part the following year. Rarely would I say there was a correct payoff. No. So, yeah, I mean, I think if we look at it, you know, Buffy was old ingredients, or ingredients that had pre-existing form, things that Whedon found interesting put together in this new way and that's what made it new was the fact it's, that no, it's as original as harry potter is in that respect you know you kind of take stuff that already exists and just mash it up and make make something of it uh i mean sitting in the opposite corner to buffy at this time the other major force uh, and uh, by dint of being the the current title holder i think uh was was of course uh, star trek voyager which was doing things in the Star Trek Voyager fashion, or Star Trek fashion. It's like, well, this is Star Trek. If we, I mean, and I think, to be fair, Star Trek fans would have been angry if they'd done what a couple of other shows did and started to introduce Buffy-esque plot elements into their Star Trek, because that's not what Star Trek is. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think they would have minded. I mean, Next Generation did, did have plot arcs um, that built... Towards I mean, the, the Romulan Klingon Civil War thing is the most most obvious one. There's a lot of Romulan episodes leading up to that. Were you uh, not going to say that Deep Space Nine, of course, did in fact have arcs? Like yeah, Deep Space, Deep Space Nine had, had a big proper arc. I mean, it's something like that, that evolved over time. They sort of clued themselves in as to what they were going to do and then went for it. I mean, Voyager, Voyager's a lot more episodic. Uh, oh, it was it's my favourite series actually out of all, out of all of the recent. Uh, incarnations, including its gen. Yeah. I think it's my favourite because it was a real throwback to the original format. Because they were on their own, it kind of become. I think the the my problem with Star Trek Next Gen and onwards was they began to literally like be weighed down by the source material. And the, the Voyager was definitely an attempt to kind of go, look, we're just going to go back to that. You know, it's just us on a ship. We haven't got all the Federation with us. We haven't got all these. We haven't got all this and the other. We're just going to go off and find new stuff. There's, and I actually really enjoyed that. I, 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 I find Voyager very relaxing to watch, and to the extent that I own Voyager. Sue loves Voyager. Uh, she's not about at the moment, or I'm sure she could come in and tell you what she liked about it. But uh, yes, I found it very relaxing. However, I then heard someone who was a bit of a classic Star Trek fan and had then gone on to like Next Gen, and had then gone on to like Deep Space Nine, uh, give a very cogent reason why Voyager was hated. And I can't argue with these. I don't care about them, but I can't argue with them. And and I wondered if you gentlemen could put your fingers on these, because they're there. They're quite obvious things that are problems. Ian, you might be the one who might... You know, What are your problems with Star Trek Voyager, if you have any? Um, it has very few interesting characters... As, as a major problem with Voyager. Janeway is annoying because the narrative always ensures that she's correct all the time. Uh, and, and there's not necessarily a consistency there. But that's a, that's a long-term viewer issue. Techno Babble 
well, might, as, no, might as well be saying magic words at this stage. Guys. I'm not sure. That, I'm, I'm not sure that the uh, no, no, nobody cares about that in Star Trek techno babble. Certainly not. No. Oh, but uh, it was infectious think, in Voyager. There's, there was nothing that could uh, be solved without a tetrion beam. The, the two things that really got them one. They set up Star Trek Voyager to be this thing. Oh, they get abandoned in the Delta Quadrant and then they have to slowly make their way back. And there were many fans who, because they had embraced the sort of Star Trek, the science fiction roots of Star Trek and were hoping that this was going to have the sort of science fiction or you know, idea of extrapolation and consequences were like, and, and in, in fact, the pilot episode does set up this thing where it goes, we've got this many photon torpedoes and we've got this much of this. And the, the idea of all the resources, I mean, far more like what, uh, this, the this new is, Battlestar Galactic. This is, it like. sounds like a conversation I had with you a while ago. And I think you kind of poo pooed me at the time saying, oh, basically you were upset that it wasn't Battlestar Galactica. Oh yes. I'm just pointing out a conversation I heard between some other people. Who, like, and I, you know, I don't care personally the fact that magically they had uh, as many photon torpedoes as they seemed to need. Um, and, and they, they never had, they, they never, yeah, they didn't have that BSG like we're running out of water or we have to find this or, you know, they've got replicators that will make them just about anything ever. If they want a cupcake, they can have a cupcake. If they want a cupcake with pink and blue frosting, hey, Mr. Replicator's your friend. You know, I, I don't think an episode where, you know, they've got the main problem is they've run out of toothpaste is necessarily going to be the most interesting of plot lines. But I think, you know, attrition on your crew is an issue. It, it should have been an ongoing concern, Voyager. And also, I think the fact there isn't really much of an odyssey to it. There's, there's, the direction is that we're heading towards Earth, and by and large, it's just here's planet of the week, here's anomaly of the week. That there's There's no sense of progression of journey i think uh, yeah well because there was this other thing which i was like i suppose this does make sense in retrospect the, the first voyager was the first time that the studio accepted fan scripts not all of them but they cherry picked the best of the fan scripts to turn into episodes it sort of got a bit fan servicey that was the other thing that 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 and that's why they kind of abandoned this idea of counting because they could go well we really like this script but unfortunately we've been keeping track of how many resources the Voyager has and they use something that they at this point can't possibly have and they thought they they probably had that conversation well do we want to stick to that or do we just want to you know scalp these fan scripts so that we don't have to pay writers of our own Um, and uh, guess what guess which of those options were I just assume that, you know, someone wrote down the line when you got like 20 to 28 photo torpedoes left and it was never thought again after that because either the script editor changed or what have you and it was just out, out of the, out of the memory zone. I would, yeah, I mean, you know, that's certainly possible, but I would say that if, if star, if people working on Star Trek, particularly by the time of Voyager, know one thing, it's that Star Trek vans are quite pedantic. So I think, that, I mean, this is the interesting thing, you know, and the internet only served to accelerate this process. What we see going on from 1997 to present day is that people can compare notes on the internet much more easily uh, as time goes on, and that fans do obsess over these things. And, can quickly become not fans if they deem their intelligence is being insulted. In fact, Voyager did lose a lot number of of Star Trek fans along the way uh, because they felt that Voyager wasn't, you know, was tired and rubbish and had too many holodeck episodes and, and yeah. whatnot. Well, essentially, Voyager's 
necessitate the fact that all the contracts had expired on Next Generation. So it, it was it was basically Next Generation series, you know, uh, eight to fourteen. Because Next Generation's innovation to Star Trek is, is the holodeck, isn't it? You know, that's his big thing. How often in Deep Space Nine did they have a holodeck episode? Not very often. They're usually side diversions, weren't they? And so, yeah. Anyway, um, Voyager. It's not It's not that bad. It's not that good, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's all right. Uh, I mean, if you're going to say it was, it was a callback to being more episodic, then, frankly, dumping them in the Delta Quadrant, where there is no Klingons or Romulans or backstories to bog them down, other than what the characters have brought with them, is probably a good idea. Yes. It has to be said that there were only a couple of series, but there were a couple of television series that claimed Voyager as a, you know, the Voyager model as a, a virtuous way to make television, which quickly became, yeah, no, this isn't the way to do it. Um, and the two that I'm looking at right now are Mutant X and Sliders. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Sliders gave up in the end. They went, oh, Sliders, you know, it's a bit like Quantum Leap, it's a bit like Star Trek, it's a bit like, you know... Um, well, on paper, sliders is, is a very clever idea because you can. It's cheap television. You're recycling the more or less the same actors over and over again. It's even always set in the same location as well. It's sort of the Los Angeles side of America. These it's things, San Francisco. Yes, yeah, it could have been great, but I think it was kind of let down really by the writing of various things. It just didn't live up to what was potential. The, the and first... a lot of them was just cheap, and you know, it's like well. I don't think they were trying. The first two seasons were were patchy, but okay. And I think, honestly, Sliders was therefore taking its lead from Voyager. It was going, yeah, okay, so that episode was rubbish, and these, you know, ten were mediocre. And But then there were these three in the 22-episode run that were really good. And it's like, that seems to be good enough. It seems to be good enough for Voyager, so, hey, why can't it be good enough for us? And it got the numbers, audience-wise, for a while and because I think in the end it, it was guilty of not being Star Trek so there weren't people who would you know hate watch it because it was like oh come on get better get better it, with sliders they had no attachment they had no reason to want it to get better so they just turned it off and it started to slide in the ratings and then you know seasons three and four happened and hmm. well I think those, uh, I, I think they relocated filming for those series and it was a, a more executive control was given to the studio uh, well, they must have, at they which must point, have. at which point, it did start hemorrhaging its lead stars. Always yeah, a bad well, they, sign. It did. It totally did. And I think that because I started to watch season three, I really enjoyed seasons one and two. Not really enjoyed. I enjoyed them more than given. By the time I watched them, I watched them on DVD, and it was all over, and I knew the history of it. I enjoyed seasons one and two more than I thought I should from the way people talked about the show. Uh, but then the minute you got to season three, it really, it was like, oh yeah, you haven't you heard? Everybody's doing arcs these days. Plus we're filming in Canada now and, you know, uh, uh, okay. And it, it just, yeah, it just turned into, it, it did, it, it literally turned into a different show and not a very good show at that. And, and it was too confused and didn't really know what it was doing and, yeah. There it was. So really, there's only two seasons of Sliders, as it was originally intended. But it's a waste of so much potential, because it's one of those things where, what story do you want to tell? Because we can pretty much do anything with this format. Just throw your characters into, into whatever world you want. And that world is just made up of all the same bits of props and costumes that we already have in our own world. So it's cheap. And, and so it, it, it's, it's quite sad it didn't work in many ways. I, I got hooked on. 
to the, the idea of it. But then as I was just watching the week by week, it was like it, it just they didn't do what they should have done, really, with it. It just felt like a bit of wasted opportunity. That's all. You know, it, the, the, the concept was great and that was it. They didn't do anything that excited me. They could have done so much. You could have ran. You, you could have done. If you've seen um, uh, Fringe, the mm. you've seen Fringe. Yes. But they every season they radically change the situation so that you now got you know different setup and you've got different. It might be now that you're in a parallel universe and everything's different or whatever. So I mean, you could have really done exciting stuff where you set all this up and then just change not on just on an episodic nature but the whole season could change and then you know it just you could have just had a lot of fun with it and i just think it was it felt kind of like a second rate thing really just the writing wasn't good i didn't really engage with the characters terribly you know it was just kind of lacking a lot it was just like a really good idea but just eh, just a bit meh really unfortunately Yes, Mutinex. Uh, X, uh, apparently, X Men was quite good in the cinema. Can we do uh, a series like that, Leo? Well, it wasn't, and it wasn't because X Men wasn't going to come out till two thousand. But Mutinex is definitely from the nineties. What people derisively say, and I think this is a, a, an idea worthy of derision, and it's definitely the case. They wanted to make an X Men television series, but they didn't want to actually use the X Men or do it anything like Marvel. They wanted to use the word mutant, basically. And it was, it, I mean, it is like the first of the superhero shows where they're, you know, they are superheroes. They have a volcano base. They're, uh, that they're being, uh, mentored by, uh, Lex Luthor from, uh, The Adventures of Lois and Clark, uh, or whatever it is, New Adventures of Superman. Uh, you know, it's, it's got all this kind of stuff going on. Uh, but then they were very aggressive about, we're not doing arcs. We're just going to do episodes. It was awful. It just, I mean, it really tired. So I watched a couple of episodes. I'm like, I can't watch any more than this. It did feel like I was watching something from the 80s, which is with a bit more expects. It just didn't feel like it. Right. I mean, considering this is, I know it's going back a little bit. I've only, you know, I maybe only seen the last couple of years. But still, with what was going on around it, I was just like, if I had been watching it at the time, I would have been even more disappointed because... I would have been expecting it to be like the other things that I was seeing. It had a, yeah, I mean, it had a recurring villain, and the problem with that was the, the reset button is a detriment to the villain because they never learn their lessons. The good guys defeat them with the same strategies every week. Yes. And, and the villain was very weird as well, in a bad way, not weird in a good way. Weird in a way, in fact, where it was like, when you first saw it, you're like, wow, this is going to be an interesting villain. And I think that's what it is. It's like, basically, they dressed the, the villain like Andy Warhol, but then he was just a villain in an Andy Warhol fancy dress costume. And you were like, well, what's the point then? Why have you done this weird thing? And I'm like, I don't know. People like that kind of weird shit. It's like, well, yeah, but no, uh, you you kind of missed the point. If he acted like a sort of pop art guru, but dressed like a Wall Street banker, we'd be all on it. But the fact that you've got some guy and made him behave like a mustachio twirling renter villain, but just dressed him in this weird manner, doesn't really work. You, you've got it the wrong way round. While we're down here in the bottom of the barrel, let's look at uh, some of the also-rans of the late 90s period. I'm thinking Brimstone, Crow Stairway to Heaven, and Mortal Kombat Conquest. Let's get them out of the way. I haven't seen a, I haven't seen a wow. sodding episode of any of these. 
Really, Mortal. Well, I mean, you must. Have, you, you, I believe you were the one. Mortal Kombat Conquest was just an offshoot of the other Mortal Kombat television series yes. that they were doing. I mean, it was just another one of those. Well, I, 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 I think... feel like these are series I feel like I've seen, even though I haven't seen them. Is how I would describe it. I thought you'd said to me, Ian, that you'd you'd watched an episode of Mortal Kombat the television series and described it as. Well, it's like pornography, but without actually any sex or nudity in it. But the quality of the acting gives you that. <laughs> it's a good line, so I'm going to say that I said it. <laughs> and what's Brimstone? Because that sounds vaguely familiar, the title, but I, cause I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to remember. Brimstone uh, perhaps doesn't deserve to be lumped into the, the, the also-ran category. Mortal Kombat is in its own level of... I think that Mortal Kombat was taking its cue from the fact that Raimi you know, made Hercules and Xena and they wanted to make a they, they sort of create this alternate Mortal Kombat uh, thing. So it was, it was a bit like sort of Hercules with crapper acting and more blady 90s extreme costumes. Okay. Yeah. That's basically, it was like a fantasy series. Uh, you know, and I think one of the essential things is that because it was for television, I don't believe there was all that much, you know, death in it. And, Which is and, what uh, you want from it. If you're going to watch Mortal Kombat, you know... You want to see, you want you want to see plenty of killing, you know, and and not much martial arts either. You know, people going Keon, yeah, waving their hands around. Yeah, it's not very. If it's going to be an ongoing series, there's not going to be many kind of finish hims going on because they have to beat them up again next week, surely. Yeah, so there we go. Um, again. So it's a bit like a sort of live action version of an eighty Saturday morning cartoon, really. Right. Yes, fair enough. Um, at exactly that pitch and level. Brimstone. Uh, what was what was this exactly? Brimstone was a story about the devil sending a tormented soul back to Earth to track down a certain arbitrary number, 77, I'm going to say, escaped souls and promising him his freedom in return for that. So it was like a hunt down the demon of the week. But then, obviously, as he came to, you know, they found out that hell is corrupt and that... that Damned souls needn't necessarily, you know, it was always, moral ambiguity was introduced, let's put it that way. I remember a bit about this, I'm just looking at the, the, the actors now, I remember a little bit about this, but uh, I can't say I've watched many of them. First of all, in the UK, because this is the days before they could just go, we'll make more money off this uh, you know, on an international basis if we just license it to Netflix, like they do these days, they would sell it to us and... It was shown, I believe, on Channel 4, but Channel 4 would put it on at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning. So you'd have to video it if you were that bothered. But then they'd do that thing of, like, well, it's our Channel 4 late-night program, so one week it'll be on at half past one in the morning, the next week it'll be on at 3 o'clock in the morning, and the week after that we won't bother with an episode, and we won't show them in order. You know, it, it, so, you know, you, it was it was like gold dust to try and get hold of episodes of this in some kind of sensible, consistent order. It only lasted for one season, and it was, because if you you can imagine the setup. I think it was bought and commissioned on the basis that it was cheap, right. because it's like it's basically a police procedural, but you don't need to pay a number of policemen because it's a lone traveller, and yes. he's just hunting down someone who's a human in a city. And it really would have stood or, or fallen on the quality of its script, and the scripts were okay. So yes. overall, people thought it was a good thing, but it just didn't catch on and it, it you know 
it didn't get a big enough fan base. So Brimstones, and I, and I believe there's another show. In fact, I don't believe I've seen a couple of episodes. There's a show called The Collector that went for a lot more series in exactly more or less the same basis. Right. But I believe it's called The Collector and has a slightly different setup because, you know, and then it's and, and everything. I believe it's not the same studio. You've got Reaper, which is kind of a late recent kind of comedy version of that, haven't you? Well, yeah, well, yeah, Reaper is a completely different kettle of fish, which we may or may not get to in the future, depending on when it started airing. The Crow Stay Away to Heaven, I haven't seen it, I don't know what the setup is, but it occurs to me, it's basically the characters are going to take, like, entire series to try and get the person responsible for his death and downfall. I do not believe that is, in fact, the case. I believe that, though what I know, and I haven't... If I could sit down and watch The Crow Stairway to Heaven, believe me, I would. But this, like Brimstone, but perhaps with less of a quality bar, was one where they never showed it on UK television. Uh, you could get it on a very expensive VHS. And I wasn't willing to pay, you know, sight unseen that much for it, despite being a huge Crow fan. And as well as which, it was really hard to find the actual... Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I might go away from this and have a look at how much the uh, Amazon would charge me to send me some DVDs of it, because it might be not very much. In which case, I will catch up and report back. But it's weird. Mark Descascos exists in this strange hinterland beyond Steven Seagal, beyond uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, beyond even Don the Dragon Wilson, in this hinterland of, you know... If you've called absolutely every other martial artist <laughs> B-list, uh, the, the last name on the list is Mark Descascos, which is weird because he's not that bad an actor, but he just doesn't seem to have ever really... I think it could possibly be one of the problems with his career could be that he started up being a sort of also-ran Jean-Claude Van Damme just at the time when Jean-Claude Van Damme became an also-ran Jean-Claude Van Damme. And so whenever Mark Descascos was in the frame to do a a B-in-action martial arts B-picture, he found that Jean-Claude Van Damme had already booked the gig. And so he's like, oh, not another one. I was going to be in knockoff. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to be in, you know, all of these. Yeah, so basically, Marcus Cascos, is he one of the unluckiest action stars ever to live on walk upon the face of the earth? Very possibly, because he got his own television series, Crow Stairway to Heaven, and then nobody watched it, and apparently it was a bit rubbish. But essentially, it was like a sort of goth version of that one where the guy played the angel going around fixing people's lives, or maybe a goth motorcycle-centric version of Quantum Leap. Basically, the crow goes around fixing what once went wrong on his motorcycle and being the crow for reasons I'm not sure what they were. Right. Oh, dear. Um, So, yeah, so that's, that's that series, and I can't comment on it because I've never had the opportunity to watch a single episode. Well, we're probably all the better for it, to be honest. Maybe so, but uh, yeah, I feel it is a thing that is. It is one of the things that is missing from my. You know, I would like to see it just to know what happened, which is something I can't say about Mortal Kombat Conquest. <laughs> I did once catch ten minutes of an episode of. I believe they had different series, but why does it really matter? They all had Mortal Kombat on the beginning of them, and really, it was just terrible. So I, that's in my lexicon. I've seen that. But Crow, never never seen one minute of it. Not once. Well, let's go across the pond and look at what was happening in the UK. The answer is not much. But uh, I put Lex in the UK because it was actually Canadian 
and European. Although, and then the Canadians made it seem like it was American, but it wasn't. It was far more, I don't want to say highbrow than that, because it wasn't, but it was far more weird than anything that US television would ever have produced, ever, um, and had quite a bit more nudity in it. Yes. But, um, who has seen Lex? Absolutely. It was, yeah, I mean, it was odd. I, to be honest, I couldn't, I, I found it a bit impenetrable. I would kind of went, yeah, this is weird, and I don't know, I just didn't really get it. I have to say, it was too odd for me. Ian? I've seen bits of it, and I seem to be principally about a planet-destroying ship known as Lex, which is inhabited by a former sex droid, and a reanimated dead warrior, and they're in love, but they can't sleep together because, uh, as aforementioned, he's dead. And there's also kind of a weird head machine thing with eyes and lips of a human projected onto it, which is quite disgusting. Um, yeah. Is a What have I missed? <laughs> Uh, right, okay, so Lex. Season one, quote unquote, is four TV movies. I think if you watch those four TV movies, it sort of sorts the rest of it out for you, really. The, the first one in particular, I worship his shadow. I think that was what it is. The first episode of Lex is called, is pretty brilliant, in fact. Oh yes, you missed the janitor. The, 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 horn, the, the horny janitor. Who was the the sort of protagonist of this journey? Being as you couldn't really get on board with, you know, sympathise with a sort of gothy reanimated corpse or or a sex clone or you know any of the other people. Your window into this was a, a janitor called Stanley who was uh, particularly oriented on getting his end away in a Benny Hillesque fashion. And this is the thing. This is one of the things that we shall come back to. But basically, they had this thing where he he kind of accidentally got sentenced to death in this strange uh, futuristic space-faring society uh, ruled over by uh, a figure called His Shadow. And, and in the end, they escape in the first episode in the Lex, and they have to go on the run. And, and then this idea that they've mixed up Benny Hill with... Uh, a low budget rip off of Star Trek and that's what that's what it is and in fact the creators were very proud of that idea and innovation that they would have a, a sort of a Star Trek-esque but even more bizarre surreal kind of sci-fi setting but then populate it with people running around trying to get laid and that was going to be hilarious Hilarious and science fictional. Fantastic. And then the, the, the second series was a more traditional 22 episodes of them continuing. It was, and each of the first uh, four movies were television movies were about an hour and a half. Whereas in the second series, it was just 40 minute episodes, very similar to sort of, well, the setup, really. That's really the true, I think that's the body of Lex. Because then in the third season, it was a single 12 or 13 episode series serial set on a desert planet with one villain oh yeah they got an arc but then of course the problem with that is that they took away completely all the spacefaring because it was all set in one place and then in the fourth series which i haven't seen apparently it got really weird and they went to earth because the budget got slashed so what's cheaper than filming on the planet where you happen to be eh? so it, it's kind of a, a, a number of bizarre ideas about what would make an interesting series that, that that collide with a number of budgetary constraints to make this rather strange science fiction footnote really with a few high points like the first episode is definitely worth a watch 
Yeah. After that, it, it is all downhill. I'm on, I mean, I, I've probably only just seen some of the episodes. I don't think I've seen a feature-length thing at all. So I didn't. So yeah, I pro- probably just now I'm intrigued just to see those early ones to make sense of it because I simply just went. This is kind of like, yeah. A dream, it felt like. If yes. the entire thing had managed to live up to the first episode, it would have been a must-watch, cult classic. Everybody, if it had all been like that, because the point was that in the first one, they wanted to explain the science fiction, and therefore the sort of the bawdy humour got relegated into the background. Yeah. Uh, but then after you've explained it once, unless you're going to keep thinking of new things, which they didn't, they don't need to explain it again. It became a bit mm, rubbish. Let's just keep with the, the UK. I mean, I think yeah, we have to talk about space. We have, we have spaced and ultraviolet. Yeah, space, space for me was like, yeah, that. I mean, that that obviously we have we have our introduction to Mr. Simon Pig and, and crew. And uh, this was definitely something me and my mates would watch. You know, this was absolutely of its time. Like, oh, my God, people are writing shows like for us. I mean, that's what it felt like. A bit like, I mean, a bit. It was like a second wave. I had the same kind of feeling from Red Wharf, really. It was like another bite of that cherry, really. It kind of felt like this is just astounding. I and think uh, part of their conceit was that the 20-something generation of that time was people that didn't really grow up with culture. They didn't quote Homer or Shakespeare. Their sort of cultural touchstones was pop culture, films and yeah. television. And so that's what they would invoke. The proper rise of the geek, isn't it? This is it's it's literally or the dawn of the geek. If it, it, it uh, and and obviously it, this is all because of you know the popularity of of the TV shows and the, and, and the rise of that before. But I think this was absolutely something that was celebrating. We are seeing ourselves on the screen. Hey, I'm really into that stuff. I quote that stuff. I've got those pictures on my wall. And now this is about them. This is about us, you know, in a kind of a cartoon-esque kind of exaggerated way. So yeah. it was it was like, oh, wow, OK, we are, you know, we oh, are justifiable oh. as as a as a part of the humanity. Here we have our TV show. So it was pretty special, I think. Yes. And the fact that it was British was even more special. And I think I will say this, though. It does take a few episodes to get to wheels turning. Once it's going, it's yeah. good. Because uh, yeah. I, I know someone who discovered Simon Pegg and, and Mark uh, Frost through cinema, through the films they made. And it's like, oh, did you know they made a series? You've got to watch this. And we stuck it on. And the first two episodes were kind of passing in silence. And they're like, I'm just not getting this at all. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm not really getting it either. But trust me, it gets really, really funny and interesting later. Space makes it in as 90s television because it first aired in 1999. And I would argue that in 1999, it was a little ahead of its time because I really didn't get it at all until about... When they were aired the second season, okay, so late 2000 into 2001, I watched the second season... Uh, oh, in fact, what they did was they did the usual thing they do in the UK of showing all of the first series and then moving into the second one uh, in a seamless line so that it's on every week and it gets people into the habit of watching it, which is something I think they may have they may still do it. But I think they may have stopped because now people time shift everything. So what's the point? They just need to be aware that it exists in the digital 
onosphere. But uh, yeah, at the time they were trying to train people into the habit, watch this every week, and once you've watched six old ones, you'll get six new ones, uh, or seven in this case. And I happened to catch the last episode of season one, not realising that's what it was. And there was this exact point at which Tim and Daisy have an argument. Tim's been playing Tekken, and then uh, Daisy wins the argument. Tim storms out, and it cuts to a shot of Daisy doing the uh, Nina sort of move again. Daisy Steiner wins! And I'm like, maybe I have been harsh on this show. And I watched the rest of the show, and from then on I was into it. So I would say that that was the last, that was the repeat of the last show of the first season. So it was maybe a little early to the party, because the first time ran, I really didn't get it. Which sounds weird now, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those earliest examples of reference humour, and that, that has taken over Western society as a whole, due to the internet, that now reference humour. But these, in those days, you really had to work at reference humour, and it really had to be quite broad. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that the, the, the first two episodes passed in silence here, because, because although the first episode is very setting things up, and these days they would be able to see at a meta level, oh, we're doing a pilot. Ah, let's do a pilot, which actually nobody has so far succeeded in doing. Even Community, the most meta show that exists anywhere, their pilot wasn't a pilot. It didn't like, we're going to talk about pilots in the pilot like you do. But yeah, it did set things up. But in the second episode, it's the one where the, the girl upstairs has the party. They do all the they have a party downstairs and it's terrible and then there's a party going on upstairs and, and it's all about other people being younger and hipper than you no yeah. matter how young and hip you think you are and all the close encounters references and, and what not. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, I, that it's a pretty funny show, I thought. But well, yeah, no it, 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 was, it was just kind of awkward for me. It was a long time before I could watch Space again because I just remember this really awkward thing of me being really excited about something, sitting someone down and it just being, oh. And, and I was not in the mood. I was in the same mood space they were. I was going, yeah, if I were watching this for the first time right now, I don't think I'd be sucked up in it either. Maybe because I'd progressed beyond 30, uh, 20-something to 30-something, you can say. Yeah, I didn't. I, yeah, I really. I, mean, I have to say, I've been. No, I've been there because I remember watching the first bit of the first episode because it was on once before I was into it. And that whole, it's actually quite complicated to follow where they've cut two conversations two people are having with two different other people, but this conversation sounds like it's one. Co- That's not a way to start a show. When you understand what's going on later and you come back to it, it fits in the whole mould. But it's not the way you introduce your main characters because somebody's like, I don't understand. Is this? No. And you just start off confusing people. So that, that was yes. it. I mean, yeah. I have a lot of love for Space and, and I do have the, the housemates I saw it with. It was, it was a wonderful ritual to sit down and watch Space and seeing bits of ourselves in those characters as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, this is clearly a group of people who are working out how to do stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's like this was absolutely essential for what's going to come, you know, uh, Hot Fuzz, etc. It's like these are people that are finding their way in a kind of a strange place. So... It I, does, think, I mean, it, one thing that does occur to me, I think that where it really starts to pick up is uh, in the 
the non-zombie episode, the episode where Tim is playing Resident Evil. Yes. And uh, Twiglets, better not, they make me violent. You know, yes. uh, it's, it's yeah. I can't that's... believe some of the shit I used to do with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, when they get to that point, it's like they realise where the pitch is. That zombie survival weirdly seems to be the breakout point because up until that point they're trying to be normal but when there's a lot of zombie post-apocalyptic imagery that you could do i mean community is exactly the same way in that it's fairly you're finding it hard to follow what they're trying to do until they do an episode where the campus gets reduced to a post-apocalyptic wasteland uh which you don't really i mean you if you haven't seen the series that's all I'm going to say. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, they, that kind of zombie post-apocalypse imagery seems to be the point at which your brain suddenly, as a writer, goes, oh, I could do all this with it. And then it starts to get really mental. Uh, but up until that point, you're not, you're not really understanding what the pitch is as a writer. And that, you, that seems to... So, obviously, the ultimate one of these will start as a meta-pilot that references pilots as it's set in the post-apocalyptic zombie wasteland. So, yeah. There we go. We've answered that question. You're welcome, uh, makers of meta-sitcoms, as we go forward. And the last UK entry, sad, sad and Alone by itself, having a mere six shows, Ultraviolet. I really love Ultraviolet. I was so yeah, glad it didn't get a second series. It was it was rumored it was going to have a second series on Sky because Sky repeated it, uh, but then they did they, they demurred. And I've I've met some of the people who are in uh, Ultraviolet because they recorded audiobooks when I when I did that sort of thing. And I spoke to them and I got what sounds like Harker signed my video and then what's the guy um, Davenport signed my DVD and they yeah, they they loved the series as well they thought it was a really quality thing they made I mean they all thought it was a bit too dour uh, Susanna was joking about oh look here's a scene where I smile there's so few of those but uh, the, the, I think they were all buzzing about it and Joey O'Hearn seemed to be a really cool guy for a while when the series was going on I, I don't understand why it didn't become a bigger hit I mean I think the first episode is the weakest and the hardest to follow. But once it gets going, it's it's really good. And it was described at the time as UK's answer to the X-Files. Yeah, love it. Absolutely. Yeah, enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was all over so quickly. So that's all I remember. I just like, yeah, oh, that's a shame. I think it was one of the interesting things is that um, I think it was a victim of people assuming that television is going to be one certain particular way. Like if you made that these days... Even in a six-episode arc, people could go, oh, it's an arc, you know, I'm following this, it's an arc. Whereas I think that people at the time, being 1998, we, the public consciousness as a whole, I think people dropped off before they got to the, the killer conclusion and found that all of the, the episodes, more or less, had a little thread of the vampire's plan. And then in the last one, it all came tied together and they understood what it was that they were trying to do as the main character, you know, as the main mentor figure said, it's not about peace, it's about war. Well, you know, I think so, but I, I was enjoying it as we were going, so I, I don't know if that's... Yeah, but I think other people didn't... I th what you've got to understand is that people who like that sort of thing... Were, I mean, you know, this is the point. I think people who don't like Star Trek one of the things that irritates them is that they could just like switch it on and it's being Star Trek. 
and they don't really understand what's going on. And, and yes, the fan base is rabid because it's got the kinds of things that they like in it. But people who, for whom the sci-fi isn't enough, I mean, this is what, I mean, we come full circle back to Buffy. I think the reason Buffy took over the world was because there were people who were watching it who were like, I would never watch a show like this. And Ultraviolet really didn't have that. Oh, of course, the thing we've got to, we haven't mentioned so far, of course, Ultraviolet uh, was cool before everybody because it had Idris Elba in it before yeah. everybody knew he was cool. Indeed. Uh, that's where I first saw him, and he's, he's yep. been awesome ever since. Well, he, he delivered my favourite line of the whole series. Yes. If I was, you'd be dead by now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is just, you know, so good. So good. Yeah, Ultraviolet. I mean, the thing is, it doesn't matter how miserable it is. Ultraviolet is an amazing piece of drama. And I think the miserable pitch, because it's a show about vampire hunters... Well, the, the kind of way it took itself very seriously just adds to the fun in a way. Well, it's, I mean, you, you, you learn as the series goes on and you get more of the characters' individual backstories. Is that, uh, what's, what's the name of the main character? Jack? Um, yeah, probably. You probably. The main character's origin story is the first story. That's our intro to the series and his traumatic things of how the vampires, you know, how, how his loved ones turned into vampires and his world was destroyed. But then you realize, this is the case for all the characters. All the characters have some very traumatic thing that's happened in the past that has led them to be a member of this team and how it's built up over time. So it is, it's, you can almost, you can always see how a prequel would come together. Yes. But there we go. So that's, yeah, Ultraviolet. If you haven't seen it, uh, go see it. Didn't they, wasn't there some pilot they made for a US? Yes, uh, which, had, which had Idris in it, uh, apparently. But apparently it was, right. uh, they asked Susanna Harker, she turned it down after reading the script. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, this, I can't remember if this is from her or from Second Party, but it was kind of, it was described as, it was vampire soap opera, more kind of a vibe to it. The characters. Oh, well, we can't imagine. More falling into, <laughs> characters are more <laughs> falling into bed like. with each other and stuff like that. You know, you gotta have a good time whilst uh, chasing vampires. Yeah, okay, vampire soap opera. I'm glad I, that never happened. Yes. Oh. Well, I was, well, you know, I think the thing about the ultraviolet vampires is that as soon as you're a vampire, you're just so unremittingly selfish, and you're very good at hiding it, and that's very disturbing. Yes. Yeah. So there we go. So we've we've taken that skip across pond. That has made me feel better because of, yeah. uh, even Lex has its interesting moments, but Space oh, yeah, and Ultraviolet yeah. are definitely some of the finest artifacts of '90s television, and we're responsible for both of them. So yay us. Good for us. But now we get to talk about uh, some of the things that we haven't. I mean, we've got some shows here. Uh, Angel is an obvious uh, example here. But um, Charmed and uh, Stargate SG-1, and indeed to a certain extent Millennium, although that was an offshoot of the X-Files, all had this thing where... Uh, television executives post Buffy started saying, hey, have you guys considered giving your show, you know, like an arc? Because that's really hot right now. People experience Stargate SG-1, I think, as not having arcs. But it, the writers very cleverly just have very long, slow arcs that take many series to go through. But every new episode in that thread takes that story on a little bit further but if you were to watch them next to each other you wouldn't see the arc but it's there definitely which is one of my favorite things in stargate sg1 well i think it's not so much arc it's a case of if you serially defeat the villain it starts to have consequences after a while 
No, no, but they had different, st- like they had, um. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, they did use other things, but it, it was kind of, it's just a case of consequences that they remembered the fact they'd done episode X where this happened. So oh, therefore, well, yes. That's what's called an arc. The plot yeah. moved forward, you know? I mean, you know, we're splitting hairs here. You know, you had the, Evil politicians on Earth arc. You had the aliens who aren't as bad as the main bad guys because there are less of them, but they're still pretty bad uh, arc. Uh, the ones who wanted to take over people by doing uh, other things than just turning up in big ships, shooting them. And then you had, yeah, I mean, and then you sometimes got surprising, like, you know, reoccurring characters. And, but every, and, oh, and then, of course, they decided that uh, we, they weren't going to defeat the Goa'uld, but they were going to introduce like a system in the replicators. They became the series villain at one point, probably as a direct result of people going, oh, well, Goa'uld, Goa'uld, they're there, they're evil. Yes, we know all about it. But, you know, how about um, how about having another series villain this series? And, you know, and each time they introduced a new one of these, they weren't content to just do the same episode over again in different series. They would actually, as you said, the last time that they met these people, there would be consequences for the next time. So yes, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, to, to, to kind of like you know, good, what's a good arc? What's a bad arc? I, I think I think a good arc is well, a bad arc, I shall say, is one where there's this thing in the future that has a gravitational pull that's that contorts and manipulates what you're seeing right now. That's bad. You know what I mean? When you have, when the secrets that you're holding back from the audience, that's bad. I think when you have something that just rises organically. Uh, Why are we when, on this island? Why didn't we die in the plane crash? <laughs> Sorry, I'll leave well, it there. Well, no, because that's that's all mysteries in the future that that's contorting and distorting what we're doing right now. As opposed, so what to, are you talking about? The thing in the future that's just what, so what, right? Okay, if that's not it, what is it? That's bad. That's the thing in the future. We've got a big mystery we're working towards. We've got puzzles. That, that's example. Yes, yeah, so yes. So as an example, Lost is the poster oh, right. child. I thought for... you. I thought you were countering me by citing Lost. No, 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 no. I was supporting you because they were but... making that up as they went along. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I could undermine my argument. But yes, I yes, uh, yes. It's the good arc, on the other hand, like in Stargate SG One, each time they came to an episode, they wanted that episode to be good. But they weren't shy of going, ah, but we've had these villains or these characters before, so let us move that story on. And they weren't going, they didn't have a thing they were working towards. It was shaking out as it was going along. So that's fine. I mean, you know, when you got to the point, the point that you were at was as interesting as it was going to to be. Um, And they did remember, you know, from one-off episodes, oh, we got that piece of technology when we did this episode. So maybe we could use that or ask these people for help. And that that was nice as well. The fact they didn't just go, you know, the, the number of times we go, well, you know, you've invented this now, so that changes all the episodes afterwards, except that it doesn't because conveniently at the end of the episode, you forget that ever happened. Uh, you know, it didn't have that syndrome uh, very much. Uh, Stargate SG-1, I would say, is the true successor to Star Trek in my so. mind. So I, I, this this is actually a case I think where the series is much better than the original film. The original but, film makes a perfectly decent pilot to fine, the pilot. It's fine, but this took it on and it just made it the thing that I really enjoyed actually that rather than just being having all the Egyptian stuff, the, as it involved evolved, you had all the different mythologies, and that get the gave the sense of this enormous multiverse universes. 
which I think is great. I think, uh, you know, and it works very well as the kind of, uh, as a format for TV. It's perfect for it, having the human, you know, soldiers going and going and going through these gates. And sure, you know, they can just look like parts of British Columbia, you know, surprisingly often. Um, but it works perfectly. You can go through and have all kind of things. It is very Star Trek in that in that respect. And so I, yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed watching it. I thought it was, it actually made me appreciate the film more from the previous podcast I, I really didn't enjoy at the time. Yes. At some point, I think we need to sort of take the Stargate phenomenon on a bit more because I've loved Stargate. I liked the movie. I loved the series. I really, I, I didn't think I was going to get along with Atlantis, but in the end, I really did. And in fact, it has my favourite Stargate character in it. You mm-hmm. have three guesses who that is. And, and then they did Stargate Universe, which is generally, for the non-Stargate fan... Most people like Stargate Universe. I'm really enjoying this. I heard several people remark who weren't really that bothered about Stargate before. But for Stargate fans, Stargate Universe was absolutely terrible. Because it took away all the things that they loved about Stargate. And I can tell you that as someone who's ploughed their way through half of the first season of Stargate Universe. Thinking, well, it's got to go back. You know, there's got to be some notion of, of what... Everyone liked about Star. No, they just decided to totally battle Star Galactica it up. Yeah, and and it, it just yeah. Oh, I can't. I can't really. I don't even consider it to actually be part of of Stargate. And thankfully, it has no concrete tie to Stargate. Whereas Stargate Atlantis and Stargate SG One were tied together, Stargate Universe exists. Aha! In its own universe, so can be ignored and will be from my point of view. But that's discussion for another day. I think we've kind of covered just about everything. I, I can say things about Charmed because uh, Sue likes it and we've watched it together. Maybe it would be interesting to know, what is your opinion of Charmed, gentlemen? Oh, no, for me, it was kind of a more TV-acceptable version of Buffy. I don't know, I watched it. I enjoyed it. I didn't watch it uh, all the time, but it's, it's definitely it's definitely something that was appealing more to... Uh, women, I, I'd imagine. I mean, it just felt like it was that kind of show. It wasn't quite enough for me. It was kind of safer and more conventional. Mm. That's what I thought, anyway. Interesting point of view, which I shall come back to in a minute. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say, uh, very similar to Justin, I, I didn't really watch, I've seen a few episodes of it, I was aware of it, my mum watched it. A lot of women I know have watched it and loved it. Uh, and just because I'm not a fan of it, or perhaps didn't quite get it, or perhaps were, you know, slightly cynical about a few things, in no way do I want it gone, or feel it should be banished from our list for some reason. No, not right. at all. Uh, just like, you know, the various vampire series we have these days that have a certain segment of the audience that watch them, I'm perfectly content for them to exist, and for them to have fans, and for them to be loved, just as much as I love my shows, it's a big universe, there's room for everyone. It, yes, it, it, I think this is very true, and I think that there are people who looked at. I think if you were of the reverse opinion that it's a blight upon uh, the face of, of science fiction television, it should never have existed. I think if you meet someone who like that, who is uh, who has no arguments and has never really watched it, or or thinks that it is quote unquote silly, you found yourself a misogynist there, uh, yeah. gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one thing about it is that it, it's not. 
It certainly isn't as off-the-cuff trying to be witty as Buffy is, uh, but is it more TV acceptable? I would say no. The first thing, in, when I was watching the first season with Sue and we were watching the first few episodes, one thing that struck me was it's pretty brutal. Things happen to people and they're pretty bad things. I mean, and, and in the first episode alone, uh, one of the sisters is, is dating someone who turns out to be a demon and they have to stab that demon to prevent them killing me. And it's pretty graphic. And you're like, okay, that I wasn't really, until I sat down to give this show time, I wasn't really expecting that to be any part of the tone. Um, and then it, it tried to do things. I think that they were very conscious of doing things like uh, we're not going to shy away from, you know, these are three sisters who are in their 20s living in a house in San Francisco who happen to be witches. But therefore, there's going to be quite a lot of boyfriend stuff going on. Um, and then one of them gets married. One of them has children and they're not going to walk away from that. I mean, one of the things about it is that. Uh, Buffy's reaction to the prospect of people living a semi-normal life in addition to having wielding cosmic power is one of abject horror and uh, frames it that this is one of the most miserable things that can happen to a superhero is having to work, you know, a job to make a living and to be, you know, stable in that way. And Charmed, on the other hand, says, well, no, in real life. I mean, yes, they had what we would describe. Many of them had what we would describe as television jobs, e.g. they weren't real jobs. It was like they owned a nightclub. And, but then it's, that's part of the wish fulfillment of television, isn't it? They certainly didn't take it and make it into the, oh, now I have to go to work. So that makes me ultimately miserable and life is the big bad. No, they never did that. They wanted to enjoy their life and often found their powers to be inconvenient and their responsibilities to be not what they wanted. And certainly when the television executives went, that Buffy thing's pretty hot. I mean, the season eight of Charm, which wasn't even at some point supposed to really happen because I think they wanted to leave it off with season seven, but then they were kind of dump truck of money. Oh yes, okay, we'll make season eight. But season eight is basically Charmed rips off Buffy. Like right. completely dead. Which the weirdest thing about season eight is that the Buffy surrogate in Char like basically the way that they set it up is that they have a Buffy surrogate and the three sisters are Giles uh between themselves teaching this young surrogate. And the young surrogate is portrayed by none other than Penny from the Big Bang Theory, which if you're a Big Bang Theory fan is really weird because she's about 12 or something. It's just so odd. But yeah, so it certainly was looking, the executives producing Charm were certainly looking in Buffy's direction, because after Shannon Doherty disappears and the show gets about 33% better in the absence (laughs) of Shannon Doherty and the addition of Rose McGowan, let's not forget that, uh, they certainly go more arc heavy they and some and, and as soon as they're all doing this this is the goal i think that there is a certain point at which people may look back on this period that we're about to enter televisually as the golden age of arcs because when arcs were new executives didn't really care what the arc was as long as the show jolly well had one and that meant you got some really weird stuff because the writers were like children given a new toy set for the first time ever and some of the stuff that went off is just bizarre and then over time people have become more used to shows having arcs and now you know an executive might have an opinion on whether an arc was a sensible arc or a silly arc or when and 
in this point, you know, yes, it didn't always work, but my God, when somebody came up with something really weird and it became part of the, the, the sort of fabric of that television universe, it was memorable. And I think we may be heading into a period when that can be said less and less because people are more disciplined about the arc of their series as going forward. Uh, the only thing on the list that we have not discussed is Earth Final Conflict. Yes. Really discussed. Millennium either, but well, we I, don't even call, I, don't even call, I don't think you can call Millennium a spin-off of X-Files. It was more like a parallel series to X-Files. It was the same universe, but there was, there was no crossover whatsoever, as far as I could tell. Not really. Uh, and, and again, no plan, because when they did get to the Millennium uh, in an X-Files episode, nothing happened. There was no reveal, no. there was no payoff, nothing. So, uh, empty closet. Uh, but yes, uh, Earth Final Conflict, which I haven't seen a, a tremendous amount of, but it's mainly famous for, you know, let's raid some scripts from Gene Roddenberry's attic and see what we can do with them. And it ran long enough that it must have had fans. It, someone out there must have digged this stuff. Oh, my dad really liked it, but it was on Sky, so I didn't watch it and couldn't. It, I mean, it almost certainly had some kind of an arc because... Uh, obviously, as for, for those that viewers that don't know, the setup is that aliens have come to Earth. It's a bit like V, but the the aliens are even more like cagey. And you know, you know what they've done, what he's basically done is taken V and dialed back the war machine and dialed up the they're up to something quotient. And so it, it's about you know the aliens are helping us move our society along or are they or what is going on and you know and 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 then sometimes they think they've definitely worked out the aliens are up to something sinister and then it turns out that they were or at least in the end when it looked it's all blown apart it looks like the aliens were actually trying to save the humans from uh, some kind of painful realization about their own uh, innate brutality and the alien mentor would look on them sadly you know and stuff like that yeah it was just you know i, I thought i thought the latest series of yours was the fact there was an even nastier species out there and the 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 benevolent the quote unquote benevolent aliens of the of the main series were kind of gearing us up to take on those. I've got no idea because I didn't couldn't didn't what well, didn't have the option to follow it. And no. By the time I could probably get hold of it, I wasn't really that interested anymore because I don't. I think one of the things about Earth Final Conflict is I understand it is not dated well. No. Well, yes, yeah, like, like most of these series, they were sucked up onto Sky uh, on the satellite channels, and it didn't make it down to the networks. So, yeah, it, we, so much of this was barred from us. I'm amazed I saw as much of X Files as I did. Well, I mean, to be fair, I think the X Files was one of those cases where, yes, we missed some of the good stuff when it transferred to Sky, but actually, we got none of the cream, you know, yes. filtered through. Well, yeah, my, my death point for X-Files was the movie, definitely. Cause you go see the movie and it's not like they'd saved anything up for it. It was just an, an extended episode of X-Files, nothing resolved. Anyway, Justin, uh, your thoughts? Uh, I can't really say I've seen either of those very much, to be honest. So I don't have a lot to comment on it. I, I do remember seeing Earth Final Comics and sure, I kind of maybe saw a couple of episodes at some point, probably when I was around my friend's house about Sky. So again, I didn't have Sky, missed out on that. I don't think I've missed an awful lot, I think. But, you know, interesting. Again, I, I mean, I would have, I, at the time, gone, I'm watching V. You know, I mean, that's pretty much what I would have said. And so it's probably why I didn't get too 
you know, like desperate to to track down it. The thing is, it's a double-edged sword for a, a TV studio to put Gene Rodenberry's whatever is the title of the show, because Star Trek, well, Star Trek fans might give it a chance then because it's from Gene Rodenberry, but there's a lot of other people who'd be like, oh, not that guy. Yes. Um, so, well, and, I mean, you know, who's seen Andromeda? You know, I mean, there are some bad examples. I've I've watched season one and a half of Andromeda. It's right. slow going. Yeah. One and a half? Uh, How's that mathematically possible? Have, put it this way, it doesn't quite have, you know, the love and production values of, you know, Star Trek. So I think it's... It's it's, it's not that. That's fine. I mean, Andromeda is fine. I mean, yeah, no, they, because it was later, they got away with a lot more. It's the script and the characters. Yeah. That's what really kills Andromeda. It makes it really hard work to... Yeah to keep soldiering on with Andromeda. And I think that's pretty much what it becomes. It's like, this is the thing, the Gene Rodenbury curses, that people become over-reverential to the point where they can't actually do anything interesting with yeah. the idea that they've been given, in case it would might upset Gene Rodenbury, who's dead, as I understand yeah. things. So why are they worrying? But yeah, so there we go. Uh, that that. Yeah. But <clears throat> I'm sure that's a discussion for another day. Millennium, on the other hand, I managed to watch, I think maybe... Is there three seasons of Millennium? There are four, I think. Four? They changed, oh. they changed format a few times. Eventually, went back to the FBI and started doing cases there, at which point it basically is another type of X-Files series. Okay. Well, I definitely made it a lion's share of the way through season two, and I watched all of season one. So is this worth checking out? Because I can't no, say I've really no, ever no, seen No, no, it's, no. It's the worst. If you say, hey, we've got a series, uh, a sort of weird supernatural-esque-ish cult right based sort of investigation series with mysterious cabals and the lead character is played by Lance Henriksen, you right. would go, wow, that sounds great. This is the worst possible thing you could do with that setup. That's oh. what Millennium is. As far as Millennium goes, we are in the darkest timeline that exists. Somewhere out there, there is an alternative universe in which Millennium is one of the best shows ever made. But this right. isn't that universe. Uh, did you know uh, the title sequence of the X-Files, it kind of finished with that, those words in the sky saying, trust no one or something? Yeah. The, uh, the Millennium equivalent of that trust no one slogan was, who cares? And it's, <laughs> it just summed everything up. <laughs> uh, so there we go so this is the I mean the thing about it is coming to wrap all of this discussion up I feel that for the first time and it's weird because cinema is different obviously but for the first time in this episode we started to talk about things that feel vaguely contemporary despite the fact that as far as I can see yeah, I'm pretty much yeah, none of those shows still exist they feel like they don't feel like old shows to a man some of them still feel pretty current well much like the cinema that you know we, we, we as we've been discovering we're seeing the, the the structure of things that we're now very familiar with i guess this is the period isn't it this kind of late 90s period where where we're getting things in place yeah, I mean, certainly... Well, yeah, there's some hit and misses. Some of them are highs and some of them are lows. They haven't quite got it. But they are getting prepared for, you know, 
now what we're familiar with. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, these are the, this is the seeds. These yes, are the seeds absolutely. of the golden age of television, which yes. exists now. Um, and what, what's, uh, what's very interesting in this technology, and in fact, I think the speed of technology is only helping this. The golden age of television seems to be stretching. The more new ways we have to deliver televisual style content to people's living rooms, the, the goldener the golden age becomes. But again, a discussion for another day. I, our, our time here in the late 90s in our lounge on our sofa looking at television is over at this point. Uh, and I feel uh, nostalgic. So that's There's some of things I want to re-investigate, actually, just, just from, to get more of that nostalgia bars. I shall be trawling the internet for some of these things. I think yeah. it's, it's getting close to a... It's getting close to, oh God, a decade since I last stuck on my... Ultraviolet DVD, so I think I might have to give those a bit of an airing, make sure they're still working. I have not seen that for a, since it was on, and I need to, I need to definitely watch well, that. Ultraviolet was one of those first things that I remember that I think to a certain extent, Channel 4, who owned the rights to it, were a bit surprised that there were not large amounts, but certainly a significant amount of people who were absolutely gagging to get Ultraviolet on some kind of home playable media format oh and i still remember that you know i knew the release date of the dvd box set i went and i bought it straight away it was yeah wow oh well i think they must have known it was slightly special because when the videos came out they had a they had a purple box for them because you know it's, it's ultraviolet guys yeah so they must have known it was it was something interesting it, you know oh no but i think that they, there was a thing when the, I think it might have been the case that when DVD became, you know, the format, it took them ages to get Ultraviolet onto DVD. I think they were a bit surprised that people were that bothered. But, yeah, you know, I think that's what happened. I think the age of the internet has created this monster of things that can not really be that great when they start out in terms of the performance, but over time become Firefly. Yep. Um... Is it worth mentioning, I think Jonathan Creek started in, in the late 90s, didn't it? It, it may well have done. Uh, it's worth mentioning it. I didn't really include it because it doesn't... I mean, yes, it's sort of tangentially related to our... That, is that still running? Yes, yeah. well, it's, it's revived recently, yes. Not very yeah, good. It's, run, it's, it's a thing that's been a thing for a long time. The only problem that I ever found with Jonathan Creek is once you've done some of the more common locked room mysteries, it starts in my mind, to get a bit silly. But I assume, from the ongoing nature of John's Lottery, that it started diversifying into other things. Um, well, now they have more than one mystery. You, you might have two or three weird things that are, you know, just so that you go, well, yeah, okay, you've got that, they did that, but then, ah, oh, now, but there's this, that, and the other, and so it's, I don't know, it's not, it's not the same. Watching the last so, series recently, which is lovingly taped by my mother and posted over to me, um, I, I'd have to say it's it's beginning to feel a bit more like one foot in the grave, in in the sense <laughs> that you have you have a series of unusual circumstances have, happening, which generally pull together by the they end. They have somewhat they have somewhat emancipated him because he's kind of now paired up with quite a well I don't think of a particularly likable character that he's married to. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. They, like, kind of like now stop doing that behave kind of kind of attitude yes you stop solving murders like oh i really would like i kind of just go out and solve a mystery it's like that kind of feel it's like "Mm, i don't really now you have an office job go be normal maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong about this but to me jonathan creek feels like doctor who for people whose dramatic 
tolerance ceases at Midsummer Murders. <laughs> Does that? That's a little harsh, but it's getting that. It's becoming more that, I think. <laughs> well, you know, there's some. It's, it's a very macabre series, as as the theme tune alludes I to. Uh, I, I think Midsummer is is rather cruel. Personally, I think that's it. Hasn't quite got to that stage. Well, that was just this is my impression. I think the I think the specials, the kind of Christmas specials, the recent ones were better. But the the actual series is definitely going down that path, and it could just get worse and worse. I mean, it, it could it could turn into that. Uh, uh, I certainly, think... he's not a very interesting character now because no. he's, he's kind of stuff against his will. Uh, I mean, he's never what uh, to see. I think we all we all agreed that the you know the jumping the shark moment was when Carolyn Quentin left the series. The, the, before then, it was the golden era, and after that, it, it's just been trying to find its way again with a succession of completely different formats. Anyway, uh, yes. So that was that was your extended final thought, Ian. Don't forget, <laughs> Jonathan. Don't forget Jonathan Creek. Well, I think I think I, I think we pretty much said everything to say. I think I think yes, there, there are definitely some turkeys here, but there's some genuine delicious cream as well. And overall, I don't think the 90s left us in a terrible condition to go into the 2000s, the noughties, at all. Absolutely not. It's giving us kind of hope that the things are things are beginning to happen. You know, I think that's that's all good. Yes. So um, I. I think I will leave everyone with this question. This is the final question to ask. Is the fact that at this point television seems to pull its socks up and start to understand how to compel people to tune in in a new and exciting way in any way responsible for the fact that then cinema seems a couple of years after the advent of these things to do a sort of similar trick and find new ways to get people into multiplexes? What is the symbiotic relationship there? Well, that is a question we shall consider and have to look forward to for I feel that we have run out of nostalgia time for this week. So, of course, next week, Ian, uh, after this, after this, uh, no, before, uh, I can't remember. I'm all confused now. Yes, we, we, have the, we have the next show taped already. Ah, yes, we do. We have an alternative, yes. But by the time this airs, it will be the last show. Alternative realities, time oh, <laughs> Yes, I'm going to go off into a different alternative reality where I have some food and maybe a little sit down. How about you? Which alternative universes are you visiting now? Well, uh, preferably the one where I have a naked woman in my bedroom. If you're asking me to choose, uh, fair enough. Whether she yeah, wants to be there or not, I don't know. I don't believe it. Are those guys back in Dimension Alpha Pi Sigma really signing off their podcast without first directing people to go to their Facebook page? In that dimension, you can find it on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. They could tell people they put up links to their podcast there, as well as links they find interesting. But of course, podcasts are what it's all about, so I suppose they could tell people to point their web browsers towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E I G H T I com. people could go there and subscribe to their podcast using the podcast aggregator of their choice or download direct to their PC for dark reasons of their own but that's only where their most recent podcasts are being stored uh, for the legacy of their
their podcasts, they need to go to leostableford.com, where a full archive of all their past episodes can be found, as well as interesting entries in the blog of Leo Stableford. Uh, my Leo is uh, not a blogger. He has more avant-garde interests, shall we say. I'm just going to move the handbag. And uh, friends don't judge. Uh, of course, uh, there, Justin, over there, is an illustrator, and you can find examples of his work at DeviantArt under Justin Wyatt. Uh, my Justin is not an artist, at least not of the drawing-painting variety. He is an artist of the tongue, uh, uh, by which I mean he's a cook, a chef, uh, nothing too um, crass or weird. Uh, and, uh, uh, tell me, uh, my Justin, uh, uh, you have to walk right now. Uh, how do you turn and flip the vegetables you're cooking there? With a spatula! Uh, of course, ask a silly question. Oh, looks like these guys on this podcast are about to sign off. I better pay attention. Yes, that could go very wrong in a one-foot-in-the-grave-esque way, but let's hope it doesn't for your sake. Uh, Justin? For me, it's always going to be jetpacks. <laughs> Fair enough. Good. So, naked women, jetpacks, and a sandwich. That's what we want from the future. How about you, folks? Bye-bye. I mean, I'll, yeah. take, I'll, I'll take a sex bot. I'm, I'm easygoing. Yes, yeah, time to say goodbye. Oh, Bye. Uh, bye.